0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I ask you to take and turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, and we're going to start off this morning in the second chapter of the book of Ephesians. Second chapter of the book of Ephesians started in verse one. And I ask if you have your Bibles with you and open, would you stand with me in the Honor of the reading of our God's word to us this morning. Stand with me, please, as we read in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it reads like this And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also. We once all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Father, this morning, we have worshipped you through song. We have worshipped you through fellowship. And now, Father, we open your word to worship you through your word. This morning, Father, as we expound on what you have written here through the pen of the great writer Paul. May this morning, Father, you make that word alive in our heart. And if there be one with us that does not know your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, I beg of you, let today be the day that they meet my Jesus. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, you may be seated this morning. We've been in the book of Ephesians since... I started with you back in January, and we've finally made it through that first chapter. That first beautiful chapter about the church, as Paul is writing here to the church, giving us some indication of what the church is and what the church should stand for and how the church came to be. If you remember in chapter 1, he told us basically about the plan of God for salvation, that plan from eternity past, that plan that was set in place before we ever existed, that plan that God chose himself to do if you remember that plan it said that he chose us he chose us he reached down through eternity and chose us he predestined us to adoption adoption into his family he justified us by the death of his son his only begotten son Jesus Christ he redeemed us through the spilling of his blood he bought us from that life of sin redeemed us he blessed us then with this inheritance His inheritance, both the, all the things that is God's, that Jesus has possession of, we have possession of, but we also come to understand that we were his possession, his inheritance also. And then he guaranteed that inheritance for us, that you could never lose that inheritance. If he chose you to be his, you can't choose not to be. You can not at some point in time do anything that would cause God to love you less. He sealed you. He sealed you by the work of his Holy Spirit. And we saw that as we finished up that first chapter last week, as we worked down through the 19th and 20th verses. You remember, he was talking about the power. The power that was in that Holy Spirit, that power that was given to us the day that we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it was that same power, he says, in 19, he says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, he says that power in verse 20 of the first chapter was which he worked in Christ, when? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He talked about this power, the very power that took a dead body from the grave, raised him from the grave, and placed him at his right hand in heaven. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that was given to you in the Holy Spirit the day that you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Some say that to be saved is nothing but to wash away your sins and give you a ticket to heaven. I disagree. There is nothing that in the Word that says that salvation is unto your trip to heaven or it's just to give you forgiveness of your sins. It says, yes, it is for forgiveness of your sins, but there's more than that. For you see, when you see Jesus mentioned in the Word, you see most often two words describing Jesus. Very rarely do you ever see him mentioned as Savior alone. See, he's also mentioned as Lord. Which means there's more to it than just the salvation There's more to it than just the saving you from your sins. And see, Paul struck the nail on the head when he said, the day that you were saved, you were filled with this power. This power. Power for what? Look at the world we live in. It eats the powerless. This world that we live in just devours those that have no Jesus. This world that we live in is driven by a powerful force. And that powerful force is not God. For we're going to learn today that there is a prince of the power of the air that is a mighty power. It's a strong power. It's a power that is so forceful that Paul goes on the end of Ephesians to tell us what we should do daily to battle that force. But I want you to understand this this morning. You have not been left powerless. You've been given the Holy Spirit to comfort you, to walk with you, and to instill within you the power of a risen Savior. What an awesome thought. As I was thinking about when Kay was saying, you should sing those songs like you mean them. You know why people don't want to come to church with us sometimes? I think we'll start next week. We'll just rotate. We'll take row by row and let you stand up here. As we sing and as we worship together. I'll be honest with you. If you saw what I saw on Sunday morning... I wouldn't want to worship with you either. I don't mean that ugly. I'm being just as honest as I can be with you. Why would a person be drawn to sourness? Why? Why would a person want to sit in a pew with a person looks like they just sucked a lemon? I have no idea. It's not just you. I'm not beating you up. I'm just mentioning to you an observation that I've made for weeks. Not just here. Other churches I've been in. Some say it's the music. We were talking about it ahead of the service. Some say, oh, and if we did more upbeat music. No. No. I've been where we've sung the contemporary music. You know what it looks like? (laughs) This. (laughs) Who said you can't be happy in church? Has anybody told you that you had to sit quietly in church? Has somebody told you that over the years? Yeah, they have. You know why they told you that? Because they never read their Bible. What did David do? He danced in the streets to the point his wife was embarrassed. Am I telling you to get up and dance for the Lord? So strikes you bust loose. Just don't knock me down in the process. I don't dance very well. I'm telling you this. If you understood what was in you, you wouldn't sit there as if it wasn't. See, we looked in chapter 1 at God's plan for the past. His plan that was set forth in the past for our salvation. Paul picks up in the second chapter, and he tells us how to get involved in that. How do we get involved in that plan that God set forth? This morning, we're going to look at who we were. The very first part, who we were before this Jesus and this power came to live in your life. He starts off in the very first verse there. And and in your Bible, I'm sure it says something of this nature, and you, he made alive. I hope that he made alive is italicized or in parentheses in your Bible because it does not exist in the original translations, the original writings, that he made alive, not that it doesn't fit. It's okay that it was inserted. Don't go out and burn your Bible or throw it away. But that he made alive was not there in the original translations. It actually read like this, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin." I think it was added for clarification because I actually started in verse 4. It picks up that theme. But I like to take it out for clarification. Because when you read, and you, he made alive, you start to see the end of the picture before you ever see the beginning of the picture. See, the beginning of the picture was, and you who were dead. See, one thing we've got to realize is before we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were dead. We were dead. If you're a Christian today, that's your past. If you don't know my Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's your present. You are dead. But you say, hold on a second, I'm walking, I'm breathing, I'm doing all the functions that we do. Yes, you're a walking dead man. There's no other way to put it. See, the word that's used there for dead, that's actually used there in the Greek, is nekros. Nekros is the word that is used there. That word is used for corpse in places. It's used for the physically dead. But more importantly, it gives the theme of having no life. Look at the world you live in. Those that don't know Jesus have no life. It's evident by the things they do. It's evident by the way they try to fill that void in their life. It's evident by the direction that the world is pointing itself. That it's full of folks with no life. They have no hope. They have no future. They're walking dead men. See, without Christ, we may physically be walking around. We may physically be breathing. But internally, you're dead. You are dead. What are the characteristics of a physically dead man. What are the characteristics of a physically dead man? I wrote down a few. First and foremost, a physically dead person, any person that we've ever brought into this building laying in a casket to go across the street and bury, there's one thing that's been common with every person that has laid in a casket in this place. He has no life. I've never been to a funeral service where the corpse set up and said anything. I've never been to one where he got out and decided, "I'm not dead. I'm alive." First and foremost, a dead person has no life. The body usually looks as if it's alive, doesn't it? When you look at it, after they get through with it, preparing it, most of the time it has good color, it's wearing a nice set of clothes, their hair has been combed well, they look physically as if they could be alive. But you see, within that body there is no breath. Within that body there is no blood flowing through their veins within that body there is no heartbeat there is no central thing that's making that body alive which is the heart it's just a corpse it's just a body there's another characteristic about a dead body I find interesting have you ever noticed a dead body does not respond to any stimulus what do they do when they try to check to see if a person is is dead as a rescue worker or as a doctor You'll see them oftentimes push on their chest very hard. Do you know why? They're not trying to jumpstart their heart. They're trying to cause pain and see if there's any response to that pain. So you can take a dead body and you can push it. You can pinch it. You can pick it up and love on it. I've been in the presence of those who have lost loved ones in the hospital. They just wanted one more opportunity to love on that body. You can cry over it. You can speak to it, but that body does not respond to light. That body does not respond to sound. That body does not respond to smells. It does not respond to a taste. It does not respond to any pain. It's just a corpse that's dead. And there's another thing that happens to that body if it's left there. That body moves from a breathing living body that now may be dead and look like a living body that responds to no stimulus, but eventually becomes very rigid. This body becomes very stiff. (coughs) Rigor mortis sets in. And it sets in because there is no flow of blood through the body. There is no oxygen being exchanged with any of those cells within the body. The body ceases to function as a body. Because there is no life. You get a picture of what Paul's saying about you before you knew Christ and about those who don't know Christ now? You may think you're alive. You may be living life to the fullest, but be careful. One day that body is going to become stiff to God, it's going to become hardened to the point that you won't even hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And for that body that doesn't know Jesus, there is an eternity in hell. Just as assuredly as there is a heaven for those who believe, there is a hell for those who don't. And one day, that which makes you, which is not your physical body, but is your soul, will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. And it's evident by many scriptures within the Word, but no more evident than the rich man in Lazarus. When the rich man in his torment in hell says, let someone just place a drop of water on my tongue. Just one. He was in such agony. What was his one request? Not just the drop, but that someone would go tell those in his house so they wouldn't wind up in the same place. If you believe there is no hell, you are deceived. There is a place called hell. For those who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you're a walking dead man with hell being your eternity. It's interesting to know that Paul says that we all were in that spiritual condition at one point in time. How do we know that we were in that spiritual condition? Continue to look with me at verse 1 there. He says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. If you're honest with yourself this morning, and even if you've been saved, there's still challenges in your life that you could put in that category of trespasses and sins. But before you were saved, it wasn't just something that came up occasionally. It was something that you were in. Do you see this theme with Paul if you've been with us through this first chapter? What was this theme of what you're in if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? It's in Him, in Christ. So the opposite of being in Christ then must to be to be in your trespasses and sins. Well, what are trespasses and sins? That's always an interesting thought when you get to talking to people trying to put those together. There's a couple of words that are used there for trespasses and sins that really make those come alive. And that first word there for trespasses is peroptimo. Peroptimo is the word that is used there. This peroptimo is not the trespasses like we would say, trespassing on a piece of property or or some of those trespasses. The trespass that's used there is best translated that uh, peroptimo is best translated to fall short or To willfully transgress. So you fall short of God's mark by willfully transgressing. See, it's not as if the guy used to say on the, what is it, the Sanford and Son show, the devil made me do it. No, the devil gave you the opportunity. You did it all by yourself. See, to trespass against God is to miss the mark, to come up short, but to do it willfully. See there is no putting the blame on someone else about your trespass. You won't stand before Jesus one day and said, "Well, they said it was okay." He doesn't care. He set a standard. He set forth a goal. Anything short of that is a trespass. But he goes on to not say just trespasses, but he also says sins. And I find this interesting. When you talk to people about sin, they immediately want to talk about those things in their life that they've done. But the word that's used for sin here is uh, harmatia. Harmatia is the word that is used. The word harmatia doesn't talk about what you do. It talks about what you miss. For harmatia is best translated to miss the mark. It was actually used in the archery of the time or or in a battle at the time. To miss the mark you were shooting at is what sin, harmatia, means. So what's he saying? Is it two separate things? Actually not. He's giving you two views of the exact same thing. The very first thing with the transgressor he says you're falling short willfully, and you're doing it so bad that you're missing the mark. Well, to miss the mark, you would kind of have to know what that mark was now, wouldn't you? We all have a different idea of what it means to be a Christian. But God has one idea. He explains to us that there's one standard. You may say, yes, it was the Ten Commandments. He set it forth. No, that was the law. The law was put in place to prove to you you couldn't do it on your own. It was never the mark. The mark is something totally different. If you would, look with me in Matthew. Look with me in the book of Matthew. Let's take a glance at a couple of these places that the mark is mentioned in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 towards the end of Matthew chapter 5, back in the 43rd verse. Matthew five forty-three. if you happen to use a Bible that has headers above it of uh, the different sections, this section may say something about love or, or loving your neighbor or something. You're going to recognize this story from the love your neighbor story, so to speak. But it reads like this, starting in verse 43 of the fifth chapter of Matthew. It says, You have heard that it was said... You shall love your brother and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying you've set forth a law apparently that you should love your neighbor. Where did that law come from? One of the Ten Commandments pretty much, isn't it? Doesn't it tell us to do that? Isn't that the gist of what it's saying? Love your neighbor? But he says, I'm saying to you that you should also love your enemies. Matter of fact, you should be a blessing to those who curse you. You should do good to those that hate you. And you should pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But he goes on to say in verse 45, that you may be sons of your father In heaven. So, what's an example of being a son of God? That you love your enemies, that you pray for those that persecute you, that you bless those who curse you. But he goes on, he doesn't stop there. He says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Next time you say, why in the world are those that are so bad and don't know God, why are they doing so well? It's because the sun shines on the good and the bad, and it rains on both the just and the unjust. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? How easy is it to love someone that loves you? It's pretty easy, isn't it? It's pretty easy. See, he says that here in the next part of that forty. 46 uh, verse when he says, Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The worst person he could think of was a tax collector. And he says, To love someone that loves you is no different than a tax collector loving a tax collector. What does it show? He says nothing. He goes on in 47. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? So if you only... Greet and bless those that are like you. You've done no different than the tax collector. Again, he's using the tax collector to show an unsaved, unregenerate person. He goes on to the 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's the target? To love your neighbor? The target is. Is perfection. The target is perfection. What does it mean to be perfect? It means several things. Most importantly, it means to be like Christ, to do those things that Christ would do, to live a life that is Christ-like, as he was given examples there. But he goes on in another section. That's very familiar to you in Romans to give us another look at this problem with the mark of perfection. Romans 3. For you see, if you think about the law, you say to yourself, I could never keep all Ten Commandments. Matter of fact, since I've been preaching, there's several of you that have broken a couple, I'm sure. There is no way physically in our body we have the due diligence to adhere to the Ten Commandments. The Old Testament, they struggled with. The New Testament, they struggled with it. We in our day and time struggle with it. If you remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees compiled some 300-plus laws to use to try to keep so that if they could keep those, then it should help them keep the Ten Commandments. Yet they failed. So what is our hope? See, he tells us in Romans 3 that we're all on the same boat. He says, starting in verse 21 of Romans 3, should be a passage you're very familiar with. He says this, But now the righteous of God, apart from the law, is revealed. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and by the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we need to realize, dear church, is this. We were all in that same boat of death. We all stood in the same cesspool of sin, dead but walking. We all were, as Paul described, lifeless. Today, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're still in that pool of sin. For you see... He tells us that perfection is the goal, and we've all missed it. For we've all sinned, we've all missed the mark, we've all come short of what God set as a standard. Which here in 23, he's the word glory, the glory of God. But you know, he goes on to tell us in Romans 1, that there is no excuse for anyone not to know about this Jesus. For you see, the goal was set as perfection. We've all come short of it, and we've missed that mark of glory and perfection of Jesus. And there's some that will say, you know, what about those that don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel? What about those that never come to church? What about those that don't know there is a God? Thankfully, Paul addressed that for us as he was writing. Thankfully, it was written in such a way that it was easily understandable. For in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, it says this For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let me ask you this Do you see a rapid suppression of the truth in the world that we live in today? For a person to say there is no God, why the fight to suppress the truth of God? See, my whole thing is you may say there is no God. You may suppress this truth so that it's not heard, but it doesn't change the fact there is a God. It doesn't change the fact there is a truth. It doesn't change the fact that no matter what you say, within you, some knowledge that there's a God because he goes on to say this in verse 19 because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them you can go to the furthest reaches of the world and find people who have religion people who understand that there is a creator right down to the very pygmies the ones in the outback Understand that there is a God. They may not understand God as we do because they don't have the scripture. But somewhere within them, God has placed this understanding that there is a God. There is something different. There is something more powerful than them. That's why you see the different uh, ruins that they find of what they call godless societies that still had their rituals, still had their they're ceremonies to a God of some type. Because something within them told them that there was this God. And in fact, the Bible tells us in many places it is the law which makes that God evident to us. That law. But you see, he goes on to say here in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, we all have within us an innate sense that there is a God. There is a God who has created all things. Nobody with any logical mind whatsoever could look at what is around us and think it came from two things running together in an atmosphere, and all this just popped out. Nobody with any thought process whatsoever could think that a human being started off as a tadpole in a cesspool. Nobody with a rational thought in their brain could think that a body this intricate just happened. See, there is a God. Whether you acknowledge Him as God or not, He's still God. And He sent His only begotten Son for your salvation. He did it when you were, as Paul described here, dead in your trespasses and sins. See, it's important to understand there is not a thing that you have done to earn the favor of God. God hung his son upon a cross when the description of you was that you were dead in trespasses and sin. You were knee-deep in the sin of life and you loved it. You were there missing the mark willfully. Yet he hung upon a cross to die for your sins. You see this power? you see this power Paul just talked about at the end of chapter 1? This power to save. See, to me it's more miraculous that he raised me from the dead in sin than he raised his son from from a dead body to life again. To me it's more miraculous that he took this body, this soul that so desired the lustful, sinful things of life and raised it from the dead. That is a miracle. What an awesome, awesome miracle. You see, missing the mark is not about what we do. We so often like to be pharisaical and attach little rules to everything. If I didn't do this, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do that, I must have had a pretty good day. But you know, the Bible never talks about the doing without mentioning the reason why. More often than not, the reason why is mentioned with never mentioned the act of doing. Because as far as God's concerned, the outward comes from the inward. See, what shows up in your hands and your mouth and your eyes, what you choose to do doesn't start with your hands and your mouth and your eyes. It starts in your heart. And what Paul approaches, what all the writers of the New Testament approach is the fact that, you know, If you want to take care of the outward sin problem, fix the heart. Fix the heart. Be raised from the dead in your heart. You can act like a Christian all you want, as we've already read. You can be good to one another. You can do good things for each other and still go to hell. At the end of the day, the question's not going to be, have you done these things? The question's going to be, is Jesus Lord of your life? The question's not going to be, can you look at this list and check off and let's see if you've at least taken care of most of these sins? No. The question's going to be, have you received my son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior? To take care of the list, you have to know Jesus. For the list is nothing but a law that man can't keep. You see, missing the mark is not about what we do. It's about, are we doing it for the right reason. Are we in tune with God? Look back at first Peter. Look back at First Peter with me, back towards the Book of Revelation, towards the end of the Bible. Yes, first Peter thirteen. First Peter 13 says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's saying, let your loins, which is talking about your inner part, the loins of your mind. In other words, gird up your thoughts, gird up your inner self uh, with this thought. Be sober. In other words, be attentive. It's not talking about going out and drinking. It's talking about being attentive and focused all on one thing. It says, and rest your hope, in other words, your future your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ as obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance but as he who has called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct see if you want to fix your holiness problem You start with your mind, your inward part. That part of you that does your reasoning and your thinking. For you see, to be right in mind, to be sober, to be focused upon God, takes care of that outward sin in your life. It takes care of that outward sin. You see, it's not even about doing good. You're welcome to turn to these, but Luke 6, and I'll read these quickly to you this morning. Luke chapter 6. Verse 33, verse 33, it says this. And if you do what is good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even the sinners do the same. See, becoming alive is not about what you do. He goes on to say in Luke 11, Luke 11, while we're in that book, Luke 11, verse 13, he goes on to say this. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he's saying this, if you by nature are evil, yet you give good gifts to your kids, isn't that doing good regardless of who you are? Don't you know people that don't know your Jesus but take good care of their kids? Don't you know people that aren't saved but are good folks? Don't you know people that give generously out of the money they have? Two different organizations, foundations, yet they don't know Jesus. See, that outward sign is no more of an appearance of Christianity or proof of Christianity than anything else. It's just good works. Good works done by evil people. And at the end of the day, those good works will be credited for nothing, the Word says. Nothing. Be credited for absolutely nothing. And you say, well, why then did the Holy Spirit come and fill us with this power? John 16. John 16 says this. John 16, verse 8. It says, and when he comes, talking to the Holy Spirit, he, again, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9, of sin. And what is that sin? Because they do not believe in me. How do you go from being a walking dead man to a, to a living dead man? Because really we're all dead to something. When we're in sin, we're dead to life. We're in sin. When we're in Christ, we're dead to the world and we're in Christ in life. How do we go about that? For you see, before we're in him, we're in sin. And how are we in that sin? Back to Ephesians. Back to Ephesians to wrap up this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us this. It says that you were in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The Good News Church, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you once walked in those And you don't anymore because of the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If we've been saved, this is a characteristic of our past. And the things that follow this is a description of that past. He says, in which you once walked, he says, according to the course of this world. The course of this world. What is the course of this world? You may think that word that's used there for world means earth. It does not. It means cosmos is the word that was used there. That cosmos really means this orderly arrangement or this systematic following, this systematic uh, thing, the system of values, so to speak. And he's saying this, once you follow the system of the world, The system of the world. See, we walked according to that world system. We judged what we did by the popular vote. (laughs) Our moral standards were set by the world, not by God. See, the world standards are set by one person. Satan. Do you see it in the world we live in today? Do you see it? Do you see it front and center every day? That it's no longer okay to shoot a line but it's okay to murder a child. It's no longer okay to stand up and say we believe that God set forth marriage to be one man and one woman, but it's okay to march in the streets saying it's okay for two men or two women to be married. See, the world that we live in, the thought processes, the system, is controlled by Satan. It's more evident today than any other time that I can ever remember. And it's changing rapidly. See, because he goes on to say there in Ephesians that you walk according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. It's interesting that word prince that is used as arcane. which means, of course, prince is how we translate it, but it means first or chief ruler. The second part there is prince of power is a word we've talked about before. Exosia. It's a word that talks about privilege freedom or delegated influence so you've got this chief of this delegated influence then we talk about the word air which is r-i-a which is to breathe or to blow and it's more about this encompassing air so what's it saying that the course of this world is set by the chief ruler that's been given authority over the air that around us over those things around us it's evident, very evident today, that Satan has kicked it into high gear. You can hardly drive down a road now without having to close your eyes to keep from seeing sex advertised on billboards. You cannot flip on a TV channel that you don't hear cuss words or, or see sexual things listed. You can't send a kid to school anymore with the confidence that they're going to learn your values You can barely go to a restaurant and sit down and eat without there being something obscene done around you, whether it be the clothing that's worn or the conversations that go on. Satan is using those that he controls to escalate his attack on those who are obedient to God. And it's evident in the world that we live in. And once we were part of that. Once we enjoyed that. And that's what Paul's reminding us of. You see, because now it says there in verse 2 that you walked according. You once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Who are the ones that follow Satan? Those that are disobedient. Well, disobedient to what? To God. To that mark that is set. You see, those say, well, I just want to do what I want to do. That's why I don't want to be a Christian. I want to have control of my own life. Wake up. You don't have control Now. You're either following the leadership of Satan, your father, or you're going to follow the leadership of God, your father. There is no middle ground. There's a prince of the power of the air. There's a God of heaven that sent his son to die upon a cross for your sins. You see, he is working through those children of disobedience. And we once conducted ourselves that exact same way, he says. He says in verse 3, Among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh the most important thing to us before we come to know jesus christ is how can we satisfy this body is that not exactly what you see going on the world around us today everybody wants to satisfy their body and what do they find out the thing they think satisfies them soon grows old and we're off to the next thing it continues to build because the little things didn't work. We'll try the medium things. The medium things didn't work. We'll go to the large things. They're slowly but surely running out of things, I think. I keep thinking we create it, uh, we make it more idiot-proof, and they keep creating better idiots. But it's one of those things where they are trying to conduct themselves and take care of that lust of the flesh. And he says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You see, it's not just enough that they make this body comfortable. They want to change the way you think. They want to change the thought process so there's no question. Satan wants you to think different. The Garden of Eden's proof of that. When he said, did God really say that? Did he really say you couldn't eat this tree? Did he really say that, Eve, Adam? He wanted them to think And he goes on to say, And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I tell you all that to ask you this question this morning. Are you with the others? Or are you with God? Is God so all-consuming in your life that the desires of the flesh no longer matter? Is what you think about, what you work to do, what your actions point towards, do they point towards your obedience to God? Because if they don't, you're being disobedient. And to be disobedient is to fall under the control of the power of the prince of the air, otherwise known as Satan. It's time the church steps up, puts it in high gear, and no longer worries about whether we offend you or say something that will upset you when it comes to to you knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'd love to think I could love every one of you into heaven. It's not going to happen. I want you to know the truth. And the truth is this. You've either given it all to God or you've given none to God. He's either Lord of your life or He's somebody you just wasted an hour coming to hear about. Because I'll be honest with you, most of our churches today are not growing because we're not living like Jesus is our Lord. We're not living with that power that is indwelled in within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. We're not living it in this lost and dying world. Why is everyone questioning what we believe and pushing it aside and supporting those things that the devil is pushing? Why? Look at the passion with which those things are presented. When's the last time you were as passionate about your Jesus as the gays were trying to set gay marriage in place? When's the last time you stood up for your beliefs of the Bible as hard as Planned Parenthood standing up for their murder of children? When's the last time you stood up for what was right when it was uncomfortable? When was the last time you fell on your face before God and asked him to give you the opportunity to share Jesus with someone you know is not saved? Church, wake up. The prince of the power of the air is hard at work. He's hard at work around us. He's hard at work within those who call themselves Christians and are part of our church. He's hard at work trying to make you disobedient to God. My question to you this morning